this song. Oh yeah, this is great. Who wrote this? Whoever did, they're freaking musical geniuses. Yeah, people should That's go. People should go to their Bandcamp and and download that. Yeah, the monthly listenership is criminally low. Yeah, it's almost like the it's like the band could have done a lot more promotion to keep that consistent, but they just got sidetracked. <laughs> Speaking of getting sidetracked, <laughs> we're getting sidetracked from introducing. This is the first episode of a new podcast. Everyone's favorite phrase to hear in pop culture these days. Uh, it's called A Musician and a Filmmaker. My name is Greg Phipps. I'm Jordan Randall. The, the legend Jordan Randall. <laughs> and I call him the legend. the legend Jordan Randall because, well, I guess we should just go ahead and address the elephant in the room. This podcast name, A Musician and a Filmmaker, <laughs> is named after a song by the musician Panda Bear, who is known for his role not only in his solo career, but in the band Animal Collective, which is sort of how Jordan and I know each other. And I became aware of Jordan through the various bootlegs and rarities that he was uploading from Animal Collective and their various side solo projects on his YouTube channel. Uh, And then just, you know, in various other Animal Collective communities like Reddit and Facebook and probably mostly Facebook. But um, I guess maybe we should back up and introduce (laughs) ourselves. I'm just introducing you as a instead of allowing you to introduce yourself. You should well, maybe that's how we should do it. I, then I should introduce you. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. Um, or when I, you know, okay, yeah. So, like, I mean, I think that it's a mutual introduction in a way because, like, yeah, I was, you know, uploading these uh, Animal Collective bootlegs and rarities and stuff. Like, I, I think I saw Animal Collective. Seen them many times, obviously, but I saw them in like I want to say 2015 or 2016 around that painting with era and um i ran into just like some other animal collective fan outside of the venue and they're like hey are, are you on like animal collective spirit posting and i was like no what the hell is that they're like it's a facebook group it's super cool like you know there's lots of rarities posted and uh, people are chit-chatting about animal collective all the time and i was like that's perfect that sounds like something i want to be a part of so then i i joined answered the security questions and um I think like some time went by. Like I think I was just kind of posting every now and again, and um, then I guess you guys asked if I wanted to admin it as well. Yeah. Well, by that point, like every time you would post something, we'd be like, "Man, this guy rules," you know. And so one day I was like, "Wait, why is this guy just not one of us?" Like that would make if anyone's qualified to be an Animal Collective uh, moderator or admin, it's this guy because he's been around in this community, I would assume longer than us. It's possible that was around 2017. Cause I think it was like early that year when the group uh, was registered on Facebook. You know what? Yeah. So it's possible you cut, co- it was like the second leg of the painting with tour. Time is purely an illusion. Yes. I, every time I reference something, I always get it wrong. <laughs> like the, the year they're just years are like, they're always wrong for me. I like yeah. what year did painting, painting with come out? I, I want to say it was 2016. Is that, yes. does that make sense or no? Yes, okay, February. Cool. At least I know that. I'm a nerd, as we right. can all uh, tell, and it's going to be great to listen to me talk. Um, <laughs> well, my name is Greg. I'm a filmmaker. I have gone to film school. I've always, I've been making YouTube videos since I was like 10 or 11 years old. Started out with like Lego Brickmation and then just got into the whole like early YouTube shtick, which was, you know, daily vlogs and just little stupid short skits and videos and just basically testing out things you learn during editing like little techniques 
and yeah, just not, never like trying to do anything serious or ambitious with it. It was just always whatever would interest me. And then sort of evolved into me like ripping off people like YMS and IHE and all these like movie criticism YouTubers. And even that trend itself, even those guys don't really do that that much anymore. So I think I, much like a lot of the YouTube zeitgeist, if you will, sort of pivoted towards the documentary part of it. But it also helped that this was around a time that the pandemic was happening and I had all this free time to watch all this niche stuff that, you know, I got to fill time. So I was just watching every documentary that I was interested in and I sort of fell in love with that as a uh, just a genre and as like an art form. And so I've spent the last few years working on a documentary about a niche topic. We don't need to get into it today. It's a whole thing. I'm sure I'll get into it (laughs) when we actually get closer to the movie coming out. But yeah, I uh, went to film school. I've worked on a few indie productions, nothing, you know, like studio. But I have sort of dug out my own little thing. I've got some irons in the fire and, you know, I'm just going to continue to do all that. And, you know, a byproduct of being a filmmaker is... You watch a shitload of movies, like I said, documentaries, but also just regular movies. And, you know, one of the nice things about adding Jordan Randall as a friend on Facebook is that every few days or so, you'll get a review of either a really good movie or a really shitty movie. And he'll always have something really uh, clever to say about it. So, (laughs) and that, and like we said, we were just mutual fans of Animal Collective. So I think we sort of have uh you know multimedia bond as it were absolutely and yeah that's basically how we met we just met through communities and um so this is a podcast where we review (laughs) let's get into the format this stuff is boring (laughs) uh the format of this Mm -hmm. podcast is it's kind of implied by the title a musician and a filmmaker uh it's worth pointing out that jordan is a very talented musician he's you know, had a number of solo projects that, like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, like, two solo albums and a, a handful of EPs. I mean, yeah, like, th- there's a lot more than that because I'm I'm very, like, temporary with my album postings a lot of the time. So right. I'll, I'll, you know, I've, I've made, like, probably about 20 or more full-length albums uh, in the course of my music making and many more EPs. Actually, in... Uh, 2015 i kind of challenged myself to make an ep every single month for the year and i did that so I did uh 12 eps and then i ended up with like a couple extras afterwards but yeah i get i get kind of tired of my music pretty quickly so i'll post them and then they'll probably be gone before anyone even gets to listen to them but you're also you don't just stick to like one genre because like the stuff i've heard mostly from you is sort of like indie rock i would say yeah. Um, but you yeah, also have like another band that you're in. What's it called? Demon Christ. Demon Christ. That's it. Which is like, yeah. <laughs> it's, like <laughs> it's a little different. Gloom metal or like death metal, right? Yeah. It's like, um, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like I started it with this guy who was like a former horrorcore rapper, you know, not, not exactly like juggalo culture, but like pretty, pretty much like adjacent to that. Just like not ever really been my cup of tea, but um, I think he kind of got sick of that too. And he was like, all right, you know gonna like try and make like a more like proper metal band and it's kind of just started off as a joke first the name was like the first thing we came up with and we're like okay but we ended up like doing this album of just completely like every song was almost like a different genre of metal or punk and then um like as things like he ended up sort of he has like a carpentry business on the side and, and it ended up being really successful so then i kind of like ended up taking like the reins of that project and making it a a little bit more like a black metal thing, but it's kind of like ever evolving. 
Well, cool. Well, the reason I bring that up is because it, it should illustrate that we're not just going to stick to one type of album or one type of movie, you know, like genre or format. The, the whole format of this podcast is we review an album and we review a movie, and that can be anything. Uh, it just so happens today that we're our first album that we're going to review is the debut solo album of Panda Bear from 1999 called Panda Bear. And, I mean, within the album itself, there's a lot of different genres, but I think it should be noted that we're not going to only talk about Animal Collective, but it's also a worthy disclaimer that we're going to veer into that fairly often. So let just putting that out there for anyone who's gonna you know hang along on the ride with us so animal collective is kind of like the glue that holds it all together but it'll be other stuff too and i think it just is fitting that this is the first album we're reviewing and it's also the first album in that sort of universe of music because i think everyone associates the first Animal Collective release, there's that Automine EP, which is like something they made in high school, and it's only, I think, AV Terror and Geologist were in it. And so it's a lot further uh, removed from Animal Collective than this Panda Bear album. And, you know, I think a lot of people would obviously also credit Spirit They're Gone, Spirit They Vanished to be the first Animal Collective solo sort of release. But this actually predates that, which is interesting. So I guess we should just get into it, since we're already naturally segueing. As we do. Let's do it. So, Panda Bear. Not a lot of people probably have heard about this album. I would assume that in the streaming age, it's like if you are, you know, a Jordan Randall subscriber on YouTube, there's a chance that you've also had this pop up on your algorithm. But it's not on streaming. It's not on Spotify or Apple Music or anything. It's not really... It's kind of the, you know, uh, what do you call it? The runt of the litter? The the black (laughs) sheep? of the uh of the crowd because it really is well i guess the main reason is probably because panda bear himself hasn't really shown a whole lot of enthusiasm about it over the years which is understandable you know it's an album that he was making back in like high school and it wasn't even really like i'm gonna make an album it was more like i'm gonna record a bunch of different little things and then at some point i'll put them all in one place so people i can just you know burn a quick cd for my friends and show it to them yeah it's kind of like um like what I do with my albums, <laughs> like I'll, I'll record them and then I'll just kind of like sweep them under the rug. And if somebody happens to find it or they happen to have a copy, like I feel like he's mentioned before that it's not that he's like not proud of the album or anything like that. It's just it's uh, I think it's just so unrefined that, you know, I don't think he he sees the need to kind of revisit it or like kind of maybe put too much spotlight on it when there's so much more that came after that which like I totally get because I do that all the time I do that with stuff that I have like you know recently written and recorded I'll be like ah that's good but you know I'll I'll move past that because I I got something better in the works but yeah it definitely does feel like that you know runs of the litter or or the penis penis monster in the attic right (laughs) and uh I think it's interesting that you know not only is it a self-titled album but it also the name itself panda bear because it's not he doesn't go by Noah Linux. He's only credited as that on like a couple of features over the years. But he came up with the moniker Panda Bear because he would make mixtapes, I'm assuming kind of like he does now with like his SoundCloud mixes just for friends and then he would draw little panda bears on the cover or like on the CD itself. And so that he just sort of adapted that as you know, his persona as it is, but um 
it's funny that you know years later he joined a band called Animal Collective and he's the only one that actually has an animal name. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you've seen that like um, that video on YouTube, like crazy video, where it's like reasons to hate Animal Collective oh, or something God, like that. And yes, it's like, I have the first one. It's like <laughs> it's like like bro, like geologist isn't even an animal. <laughs> I, I I hate that video, but I love that. <laughs> I think I hated it when I first saw it, but honestly, that seems a lot more in tune with like the modern sense of humor. So maybe if I rewatched it, yeah. I would be like, ah, you know what? That's really not indistinguishable from half the stuff that gets posted on the subreddit these days. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I think the there there's a there's an interesting kind of like intersection where you know people are okay with kind of like having like a, a weird like meme culture surround this band but then like also like really respect them they're like not you know mutually exclusive right well it's it's interesting you bring that up because panda bear himself is uh, shown himself to be somewhat of a memester over the last few years on his twitter account and now his instagram account yeah which i think he had that instagram just sitting there not doing anything with zero posts for years probably registered it around the time they did grim reaper and then within like the last year or like six months, he started posting like, hey, I'm playing a show. Also, here's a shit post. And it's like, OK, I think this guy, <laughs> you know, he knows what he's doing with these Zoomers. It's probably because he's raising a couple. Oh, yeah. But that's, you know, it's he's got thing. kids. Yeah. But anyway, let us point out that this is a very early work. So it's kind of apparent upon listening to that. I think the first track which is called Inside a Great Stadium and a Running Race, is kind of the... It's a very illustrative song of what you're going to get from the album. You know, uh, I know that Panda Bear, we heard it from an AMA years ago on the subreddit. Some guy that went to high school with him said that he was in choir, that Panda was in choir growing up. So it's possible that he was only doing like you know, supporting parts. And I think at one point they said he had like a, a solo once at a concert and he really enjoyed that. But for the most part, I don't think singing was really his prerogative. I think he was more into the actual instrumentation of it. So when you, on this first track, you can hear how sort of raw his vocals are. And this is because apparently he had never heard of a reverb pedal before, <laughs> which we will cl- uh, quickly figure out he uh, kind of fell in love with over the next few years of his musical exploration. That's amazing. I've never actually considered that. Yeah, I've never considered that that's like, um, that's what's missing from this album. <laughs> the vocals are like clean. They're totally clean. Right. Well, it's also he's doing single vocal lines because I'm assuming he was recording all of this into like a DAT recorder, some analog tape uh, electronic device that, you know, you could probably buy it in a state sale now for $10. But, you know, at the time, yeah. I'm assuming that was the best he could get his hands on. And, you know, it's understandable. It's a lo-fi, low-rent thing. There was there was no expectations for this album. It, it was just, you know, sort of born out of the urge to make something musical. And I can sort of relate to that process because I, I made my first album under an electronic project called EBDB like eight years ago nice. in uh, 2015. And it was before I, under, I didn't even know what a chord was or a scale or a key or any of that. I was just in a DAW. I had like a few basic synth VSTs and it was just whatever sounded cool. And from what I'm gathering, that was sort of what Noah, Panda Bear, was kind of going along the same sort of, that same sort of thesis, which was just, I, I don't really care about making something structured or anything like that. It's just whatever sounds cool to me, I'm going to record. 
And I think it really comes across in a track like this. that like I feel like there's a great deal of influence from the sonic texture of this song from like you know electronic artists namely like Aphex Twin I mean this is like that's the first thing that comes to mind when I hear like that kind of synth I'm like oh yeah that's Aphex well he was big in the 90s right I don't really know a lot about Aphex but I know people are like really into him yeah he he was huge in the 90s and I, I think like um you know, any any like outsider had a huge fascination with him because the music videos were like super creepy and like, you know, like demented and like the music kind of was too, even though like a lot of the like Aphex Twins, like an interesting, like almost kind of precursor to Animal Collective, because like you can listen to some of his albums and they're like very like sonically pleasurable, very like accessible by almost anybody and then some of them you're just like oh man like you definitely have to be on like all the drugs to get this and i feel like people often say the same thing about animal collectives music and i think that this panda bear self-titled album actually has you know that whole that full spectrum as well where and i think that like this first track like you said it, it is a really good sort of like a sum of all the parts of this record because it's like it's kind of abrasive it's kind of like you're if you're not really into that kind of electronic music you might find that off-putting like the intro kind of having this this weird electronic part going on but then when the singing comes in i think it it is a little more accessible and then it kind of it, it kind of builds itself up and then lyrically it's just kind of like really on the nose talking about like running a race which is kind of hilarious right and i think at one point the lyrics it's like someone just falls over and like breaks their leg or something but they keep going with yeah yeah but yeah i think the diversity on the album you can just chalk up to panda's sort of wide range of influences and just the music he was really into like if you have the vinyl of person pitch there's that inner fold like paper booklet thing and it just has all these lists of artists that he's you know either been influenced by or taken a vague musical idea from over the years and it's like everything from like the beastie boys to Inya, and just it's all over the map so i think when you get to this album the fact that it is so sort of inconsistent with its genres which is something i've grown to really appreciate as a music fan over the years is anytime that an album doesn't just have one sound to it you know like the strokes where it's like, we wrote one really good song, and now here's 11 others that are also pretty good, just <laughs> like it. Yeah. And the fact that it is, it does just go right from a track with, you know, sort of a long instrumental buildup to having vocals, and then the next track is just completely instrumental, really gets you into the music, I think, in a way that something that's, you know, verse, chorus, verse wouldn't really, because it, you don't really know what you're going to get from track to track. And some of the more, I think, eclectic moments on this album do come from the just straight up 
instrumental tracks, sort of like the second track, uh, Mit Einer Mond, which I don't speak German, and as far as I can tell, that's not proper German in any way. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's something like Me With One Moon, I think is what it loosely translates to. It has a really interesting sound palette to it. Just from reading the types of equipment that he had access to while recording this album, like the Roland 303 drum machine and the Korg 01 synth, you know, some of these more basic sort of cheap sounding electronic sounds still sort of persist in the, you know, production packages that people have today. Like even you can just go to pick up a $500, you know, synth that has a drum machine programmer. And like, I have the, um, the Roland JDXI, which is, uh, like a $500 compact little, it's basically the size of a micro Korg, but it's like mostly digital as opposed to analog. And it has all these old Roland sounds on it. So it's interesting to hear that something, the point I'm trying to get to is that something like this second track can sound simultaneously sort of dated, but also timeless because of you know, how the sort of sounds that people were coming up with organically will sort of persist throughout time and nostalgia or what have you will influence it to be brought back. Uh, as we're seeing now, where a lot of these mainstream artists are sort of getting back into the 90s uh, Eurodance club hip hop or not hip hop, but like uh, trance sort of songs, just that driving beat. Um, and, you know, I sort of got off where I'm trying to, <laughs> the point I was trying to make. <laughs> but let's listen to a sample real quick from the second song. So I guess we should maybe go into a little bit of background uh, from... Let's hear from the man himself. Here's an AI generated... No, okay, I'm kidding. I was going to say here's an AI generated <laughs> recording of him saying something he said in a print article 15 years ago. But I'm just going to read it. Around 2007, when he was promoting his third album, Person Pitch, he did an interview. And the interview interviewer brought up sort of what we were talking about earlier, which is that his album's... Uh, not only do the tracks on this first album have such different genres, but it's a recurring theme throughout his career, not only as a solo artist, but with Animal Collective, that each successive release has a much different sound than the one before it uh, by design because they didn't want to get bogged down ever in the same sound, and they were always interested in finding new sounds. So I'll go into this excerpt from this interview, which I should have gotten the name of the website, but I Forgot to copy and paste that, but I'm going to insert real quick a dub over of me saying the name of the website, <laughs> dustedmagazine.com. Wow, thanks, future Greg. Okay, so here's the quote. The interviewer starts by saying, Young Prayer sounded, Young Prayer is his second album. Young Prayer sounded almost nothing like your first album, Panda Bear. And once again, this new one, Person Pitch, sounds totally different from the last. Is that mostly because of the recording process has been so different each time? And then Noah says, Young Prayer was super fast. I wrote it pretty fast and didn't spend a whole lot of time playing it out and recorded it in two or three days or something. The overall process was kind of slow because I wasn't sure I wanted to put it out. 
it was kind of a hard place to go back to once I'd done it, which, side note, this is because it's an album about his dad getting cancer and dying and Noah's feelings and all the existential quandaries he was dealing with during that time. So he goes on and says, The first one was more similar to Person Pitch in that it was just a collection of songs. I kind of feel like I didn't even have a concept of what an album was back then. For the first one, when I was 15, 16, 17, 18 or so, I just put songs together that I liked at the time. The interviewer asks, Do you ever listen to your first album? There must be a lot of Animal Collective fans who have never heard of it. Have you ever thought about reissuing it? Noah says, I was talking to Josh Dib, a.k.a. Deacon from Animal Collective, about the song Ponytail that's on Person Pitch, and I feel like I've written that song a hundred thousand times in different forms. It's super simple. It's just one line that repeats, and there, there are a couple songs on the first album that are really similar to that. There's like two or three songs that I guess I still like on that album, but I feel like such a different person now. It's not that I'm not proud of it or that I don't believe in it, but I'm not so excited about it that I feel like I need to reissue it and get it out to a whole bunch of other people who haven't heard it. Uh, and that was 16 years ago he said that. So what do you, what do you, what do you think of that, Jordan? <laughs> well, I think that it's, it's a, a time capsule, right? Like I think that the way maybe panda bear is looking at it is like you know from that personal standpoint where he's like looking at his own growth and being like oh yeah well this these were like the blueprints of something that would have happened later but i think you know for for what it's worth like i think the the fan base obviously would eat it up like obviously a reissue of that on vinyl like would all the all the hardcore animal collective fans like you know you and me would would buy it in a heartbeat but um, I think also, like like you kind of said, that everything kind of is cyclical and comes back around, like this vintage sound comes back. Like, I think that the Panda Bear self-titled album is is like kind of, you know, a product of its time and that there was that indie, like pitchfork sphere, like early pitchfork, like when, you know, it, it looked totally different. And they're like doing like Neutral Milk Hotel and Modest Mouse, you know. Right, um, back when it looked like a GeoCities website. Yeah, exactly. Like like that, you know, I, I think it actually fits pretty well into into like bands and genres that came out around that time. So I think like if if we're hearing like, you know, the 90s stuff coming back right now, it, it, w- it wouldn't be hard to imagine that in a couple of years we're going to get like, you know, that kind of like indie wave coming back again, too, and people being like stoked on it again. And I think that there's songs on this album where it's like you can like people would totally be about that that even weren't you know just like like crazy animal collective fans or whatever yeah and it is sort of like a blueprint for later in his career where it was sort of about the diversity of the sounds that he could accomplish whether it be acoustically or with a sampler like a big thing about person pitch is that he used the roland sp303 sampler yet two of them uh, that he would perform live with and sort of basically just mix in and out of the other and keep them all organized and all that. But kind of going back to the fact that he was so young when he was recording this music, I can see from his perspective as someone who has written music around that age to where like you remember where you were emotionally back then and you either cringe or you don't want to revisit it or both, you know, like everyone can sort of look back at their high school self and cringe at parts of their personality or what have you and so if it comes to like i don't want to put this thing out there and if if i don't even really believe in what i was trying to say back then when i made it but then there's also like you know 
the fact that we should point out that this is the same month that Animal Collective has re-released their first album, which was credited to just A.B. Tear and Panda Bear, but it was essentially an A.B. Tear solo album in terms of the songwriting, uh, you know, the lyrics and the melodies and all that, but then he enlisted Panda to come on and play the drums and then was so impressed with his performance that he credited Panda alongside of him, and that was sort of the genesis of what later became Animal Collective when they added Geologist for their next album, and then a couple of albums later, Deacon joined the crew and all these different uh, record labels, which we'll kind of get to, because this sort of started all that. And yeah, I think the fact that it was from a very specific time is worth pointing out because, you know, I for, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't hosted a podcast <laughs> no, in a yeah. long time. I had a thing I was <laughs> trying to get to, but then I got... I keep getting myself sidetracked. I swear we'll get better at this, people. We've got a whole Google document here I'm just going to go through. <laughs> and we could probably fix this all up in post anyways. Eh. It's raw. The, the evolution is the interesting part. That's what keeps them hooked. This is our this is our Panda Bear self-titled album. This is our self-titled album. So, but I think that, you know, it's interesting what you said about, um, like, you know, looking back as, you know, you can say from your own uh, personal experience, looking back to music that you made when you were a teenager or whatever, I a hundred percent agree with that. Like what I, I started writing music when I was about like 13, 14 and I like, I found like an old notebook that had lyrics in it and I was reading it and I, I shit you not, like there was some lyrics that said something like, I love you so much. I could die. I lay in my bed all night and cry. And it was like, those are literally the, so it's like stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want people to like, you know, hear that. That's, it's embarrassing. Oh, I'm still horrible at writing lyrics to this day. <laughs> like I get so into the instrumental part of it and then I'm like, ah, this should have a vocal line, but I, lyrics are hard. Uh, if I try to actually put something down, it'll be so blatant and just unappealing. And then it just ends up joining the folder of unfinished demos. <laughs> I think that, like, you know, it's it's common for that to happen. I think that listening to the lyrics of this album, though, it's, like, it's really quite shocking how not cringy they are. Like, I think, you know, it's going to be different. Like, if you're the individual that made it, it's, like, you know, hard to see the, the forest for the trees or whatever. But, like, from other people's perspectives, it could be a totally different thing. And I, I think listening to this album and being like, oh, this is like some teenage kid that's coming up with this stuff. Like you listen to the lyrics in like, oh, please bring her back. Like they're really fucking good. I think that it's, it's really interesting to hear um, Panda Bear sing songs that are more like singer songwritery than what he would kind of evolve to be. Cause like, I think people, especially people that don't really listen to Animal Collective know him from his features and stuff. And maybe they like heard him on that, like Daft Punk uh, track and like, kind of just equate him as this like kind of one phrase guy that just kind of like repeats the phrase and it's like you know layered with all these you know vocal harmonies and stuff but i think that um and i think there's like often a, a simplicity to his lyrics that people kind of like actually adore uh in his sort of more actually like nowadays it's kind of changing a bit more i think Bowie's kind of like took a departure from that but I think some of the like mid era stuff, it's like it did have that simplicity. A lot of like what he wants or what he doesn't want, you know. That word want is always like in his lyrics somewhere with that hard T at the end. And um Oh, he loves his diphthongs, that's for sure. <laughs> so like I think that it's really fascinating to hear like what I would consider more like an A V terror style of uh lyrical writing on this record. 
than what you know he he would kind of become known for later on yeah it's interesting that the parallel between this and spirit they're gone spirit they vanished in that you know you can tell that these are these are people that have been exposed to literature on the regular as part of their education and so they're getting they're sort of drawing inspiration from the sort of prose of these literature pieces and i don't have any specific examples but that's just sort of the vibe i get from you know the the themes and the sort of aesthetic and images that are evoked through the lyrics and the is uh, the style of the music itself i think you you just do sort of get this like old-timey sort of robert frost feeling to some of the more you know bleaker sort of stuff out there like um there's a track that comes in around i think it's track five or six and it the album itself starts out kind of upbeat and electronic and sort of like dancey and then sort of a meme in the animal collective fan community is that it's like that's the first half and then the second half is like that doomer soy jack meme or wojack where it's like the eyes are completely emaciated and all black and right yeah so the song is called oh please bring her back and it sort of just hits you like a train with the fact that this whole thing isn't going to be upbeat it's also you know there's some there's some emotional stuff going on here under the surface and let's take a listen go to sleep sweet child push aside your cares calm your Oh, please bring her back is um, just going to kind of go on a little bit of a detour here. But like this album, I don't know when you first heard this album, um, if it was like after listening to a lot of like Animal Collective or like, you know, after a certain era of Animal Collective. But like when I first my first introduction to Animal Collective was like Sung Tongs. And I heard that in like 2005. And and then I heard like feels a little later. But around that time, like a friend of mine had you know, introduced me to this band and he was like, oh yeah, like my dad's friend recommended this band or whatever. And they're really cool and they make like weird music, but their, their albums sound different and stuff. And at the time I, you know, I was just downloading music off like, you know, like, I don't know what was the main source of downloading at that time in 2005. Maybe it was like LimeWire. Yeah. Was it LimeWire still? I don't know. I think Torrenting. Yeah. So like I downloaded all like a whole bunch of animal collective related stuff. And I remember like this, like my friend told me, Oh yeah, they're, you know, they're all animals. They're panda bear and all this. It's like got downloaded this self-titled album. And I remember even thinking back then I was like, in comparison to song tongs and feels like this feels like very unrefined. And it was like a little bit challenging to listen to. So I kind of pushed it like back, but the songs that did stick out to me that I, I revisited was, Oh, please bring her back. And I, and I was like, a pretty big bright eyes fan around that time too. And I think that like we were kind of mentioning this off, you know, the podcast that there is like a vocal similarity and I don't know if it's, I know you don't know much about bright eyes, but like bright eyes, like Connor Oberst, the guy behind bright eyes, he's always been like compared to Bob Dylan. And I think that like, that's just a nice way of saying that you have like a shitty voice, but you're good at like writing songs. Right. So like, I think that, you know, what bright eyes did was they kind of like used that like kind of unconfident voice 
in their favor. And it's like, oh, please bring her back is a, is a perfect like way. Like it, it, it's a very similar path, I think, to make a song. It's like having this unrefined vocal part that is like it feels so vulnerable because it it feels like he's kind of struggling to like hold notes and stuff like that that it actually works really well in the benefit of the overall song. Yeah, and it it ties into the the sort of theme of like the heartbreak and the the longing. You know, it's it's almost as if his voice is cracking not because he's a, you know, teen going through puberty, but <laughs> yeah. because he's, you know, emotionally like even maybe starting to cry, which who knows if this is based on a real relationship he was in or again if it was some short story idea or because i feel like that's sort of going back to the spirit connection i feel like they both have that in common where it's like is this a story that you came up with and then wrote made into a song or is this a story that happened to you and made into a song the ambiguity of it i think is what helps it be so universal and despite the fact that this album is so obscure you can still sort of relate to the basic themes of it totally and I, I think an interesting aspect of it is that you you can get multiple things out of it. You can get, you know, you, you can come there to dance during the first half or you can go there to, you know, get your tomboy feels out uh, in the second half. Yeah. And one track I forgot to mention from the first half, which I should before we get into all the melancholy stuff, is the there are two untitled songs on this album. But in the first one is the one I want to highlight. Now, technically, it's stylized as own title, which I think is just like an, a weird animal collective style malapropism or just misspelling just for the fun of it, of the word untitled. I always thought it was, uh, is, is that the German word for untitled? That's what I always kind of consider it because there's so much German. I, I don't know the reason why there's so much German in the song titles on this, but I always figured that own a title was like a, a German version of un- untitled or, or the German uh, translation for untitled. Yeah. Well, what's the other, there's one other track on this album that is in German that yeah, I think like is that, actually correct. Try and actually pronounce that. Liebe auf den ersten Blick. That, that is my absolute favorite song on this record. Actually, that's like when I was listening to this back in 2005, that's the one I kept going back to because it's so it's so melancholy. That one is like perfect for like Canadian winters. And that that one's just an instrumental, right? It's just an instrumental. Yeah, it's just like this really interesting timing, like acoustic guitar thing that kind of morphs into a little bit of a different thing as it goes along. Yeah, and the uh, title I believe translates roughly to "Love at First Sight," so it sort of keeps that theme going. That's established in "Oh Please Bring Her Back" and the, ti- mm-hmm. the track that follows. Ain't got no troubles, but real quick, let's listen to a quick clip from Own Title One. Baseline in that one, that little synth baseline, the boom, 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 boom. See, like I feel, I feel like if I knew music theory, and I, this was my first album, sort of like that's kind of closer to what I would have written had I 
been on the same sort of path that Panda was on. I, I think being a band kid, I'm assuming, and a choir kid, which we semi know for sure, definitely influenced the fact that he already, and you know, the fact that he was listening to music. I wasn't really a big music guy at his age. I was like, I would listen to like a single or two, but I wasn't really into albums. I think the first band that I got into where like an album was like integral to the feel of their music or like the experience of it was the killers when i was getting into stuff like hot fuss and uh battleborn their their fourth album but like samstown and all that stuff they they do have this sort of like grand operatic album musical suite movement feeling to them totally so it took me a while to get around to the album as like a concept and like like uh, another example is the all-american rejects which i think was like the first album i ever bought on itunes was their follow-up to move along which was when the world comes down which is a fantastic album and i'll probably feature that at some future episode but that was the first time where it was like i had just heard a few of their singles and then the fact that they're like hey we're releasing a new album was exciting and like gives you hell came out and like everyone fucking loved that and so when you get you listen to the album, it's like that is really an outlier. And then rest of it is just sort of like a big power pop sort of operatic romantic journey. And there's like talk about apocalypse and just like the world ending, but also that sort of solidarity of that everlasting relationship. And I forgot how I got onto this topic. While we're here, have you have you seen that thing? Um, it's, I don't know if it's like a video clip. I guess it's a video clip, but it's like uh, the killers. Like somebody told me, like if you take a picture of like uh, Jerry Seinfeld and and you just look at it while you're listening to that song, it sounds it, it's like it's totally Jerry Seinfeld's voice singing the entire song. No, but that was the first one that I really got into by them. So I feel like now I kind of have to experience that. Experience it. It's something else. It's a trip because like I I did that and I was like, oh my god, it's so. There's some phrases in that song where it's just like this sounds like Jerry Seinfeld singing this song. And then it's actually I don't know like maybe it's if you're a fan of the Killers, maybe it's not a good thing to do because like every Killer song I've heard since then, I just picture Jerry Seinfeld like fronting the band. Well, it might also just be the first few Killers albums that that. Because he definitely had a very specific, like, vocal intonation he was going for. Yeah. Like, that transit, almost like a transatlantic album, or uh, mm-hmm. accent, where it's like, okay, you're from Las Vegas, why do you sound like you're British? We know you're not <laughs> British. And we know he's from Las Vegas because he wrote fucking five albums about it. <laughs> anyway. I feel like I've, there, a lot of people were doing that around that time, like, I, I'm sure you're aware of the Decemberists. I've heard the name. Okay, yeah, that guy talks like he's from the Maritimes, but he's from, like, Portland. Or he sings like he's from the Maritimes. Right. But he's from Portland. And I've always thought, you know, he's, he's like, basically, like, Maritime uh, Ben Gibbard. That's how I, that's what I like to call him. Interesting. Ben, we should, ben we should point is... out to the people listening that there's a very big age gap between us. <laughs> yeah. Everything I'm saying doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm 27. I was born in late 95, and you are... I'm 35. Uh, I'll be 36 in a couple of months. I was born in 87. There's a whole decade of experience that I don't have that Jordan has. So <laughs> anytime you bring up something like that, I will just defer to you uh, and say, you know what? I believe that you know what you're talking about. Yeah, just say sure. <laughs> sure thing. I'm not going to patronize yeah. you. I'll, I I will just more, like I said, it's deference. Hopefully somebody that's listening to this will get 
these references that I'm making, and they'll be like, yeah, that's actually a very astute observation. Well, I'm sure that if there's any, there might also be people listening to the, this be like, why didn't they bring up this? Like, for example, <laughs> why didn't they bring up the short films that Panda Bear starred in in college? And, oh boy, well, oh, are we going to bring them up? We're going to talk because about them right now. <laughs> I feel like they're even bigger hidden gems than this album in terms of Animal Collective lore. Oh, yeah, for sure. Most people don't believe you the first time you tell them that Panda Bear starred in a short film about a guy who eats shit. I still don't believe it. I've seen it, and I don't I don't believe it exists. Like, literally eats fecal. It's called Fecal Matters because he eats poop to get the popular kids to like him, um, and it works somehow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? I've never tried, so, you know, don't knock it till you rock it. But I think that's where the... We should bring these up because a musician and a filmmaker, I believe, was written as a song for a short film that he starred in. And I believe the title, A Musician and a Filmmaker, refers to himself, the musician, and his friend, the filmmaker. And that song, I believe, was written for, if not, we know for a fact it's featured in the short film Fish Sticks, which I am blanking on the premise of that one. I know I watched it recently. But I really, I think it was the fact that the other one is about him eating fecal matter that made me forget about it. <laughs> yeah, it kind of overpowers the other one. Yeah. I can't remember what Fish Sticks is about either. I, I have like a vague memory of it uh, being somewhat abstract or something. But but it does have two, two of the album tracks from Panda Bear, the album, are featured in the short film Fish Sticks. The first one is Sometimes When It Hurts. Uh, it's a really long title. What's it called? Sometimes when it hurts bad enough, it feels like this. Yeah. Which is a great track. But it was weird having heard this album first and then watching those short films and being like, why does that sound familiar? And then <laughs> it clicks that, oh, he was probably writing this around the same time. And I guess we should also point out there's a third one called Happy Halloween, which is where he dresses up like George <laughs> Washington and attempts to get into a college dorm Halloween party on Halloween night. But I don't remember if he succeeds or not i'm gonna guess not because i think the character is written to be like a loser and i don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that he's playing the same person in all three short films guaranteed they're all part of the same cinematic universe right they were really they were pioneers is what they were uh oh, of course <laughs> but the reason i bring up abby halloween is because we're going to continue to mention spirit they're gone spirit they vanished uh yes. as it's a great album but I specifically bring it up because this month we've gotten the 2023 remaster of the album as well as an EP of previously unheard tracks. Uh, or so we thought, because it turns out we'd <laughs> been hearing one of them for years in Happy Halloween, which is Bus Travel, New York, Tear My Face Off. I can't remember if it's part one or part two, but it is very much in the soundtrack to Happy Halloween. And so when people heard this EP for the first time this year... And then they go back and they watch this 25-year-old short film. They're like, holy shit. <laughs> I can't believe we'd, we'd had this this whole time and we'd, we didn't even know what we had. So it's, it's great that this band sort of has that, you know, it's not like they have rose-tinted goggles towards the past, but they're not afraid to, for the most part, you know, go back to their roots. And, and they, they very much understand why the different generations of their fans have liked 
or like why their music has resonated with these different generations for these different reasons. But even then, I think you can go up to them and tell them you've been listening to them for X amount of years and they'll be like, wow, really? It's like, I don't know. Do you think people are finding you off TikTok or something? <laughs> uh, you know, you guys, it's not like you have a deadhead or like a ween type fan base, but, you know, still pretty dedicated, I would say. Totally. I, yeah, no, for sure. I, I think that, you know, th- that's even just more reason to believe that there that there is a possibility for like a reissue of the Panda Bear self-titled. Like, I think that they do bring up stuff from the past that you thought maybe was just like, you know, a one-time thing or like, because... Panda, like, not, I guess technically not officially, but I think on his Twitter or something, like, released, like, the actual, like, Atiba song, as it was kind of right. titled, right? And his his Calm app rejected yeah. ambient soundtrack, yeah. which yeah. is bizarre that it was rejected, because it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. It's very calming. But I, I guess, going back to my point about the having a dedicated fan base, the fact that this album, Panda Bear, is so niche and so, it had such a limited run back in the day... I know someone personally, user by the name of Frepno, who's very well known for their piano covers and their karaoke videos, as well as other Animal Collective dedicated, you know, fan projects. They once paid $200 through Discogs for a legitimate CD pressing of this album. And that is the reason why we have these high quality clips that you're hearing in this podcast because they did us the courtesy of ripping the cd and sharing us the uncompressed flak files which shout outs to frepno because that is you know something that i respect and appreciate and admire on the level of a certain individual who i'm speaking to this afternoon uh, and their channel full of rarities that dedication to archiving and preserving the band's material should always be applauded Especially in this fan base who, you know, again, this is a this is a trademark Greg trail off where I don't know where my sentence was going to end up. It's like that quote from The Office, right, where Michael <laughs> says, sometimes I'll start a sentence and I have no idea where it's going to end up, but I'll figure it out along the way. Something like that. You know, I, I think that that's a great way to be, though. You know, I feel like that kind of embodies like maybe Panda Bear or even Animal Collective's musical songwriting process. It's kind of like start it and see where it ends up. Right. And I think that's why this band has so much music that ends up like, you know, resurfacing years later, like the, you know, um, the stuff on the Mr. Raindrops EP that just came out with that spirit reissue. Oh, my God. I think like untitled number one. How how did that not make the album? That's like it's (laughs) fantastic. Yeah, that. And it was just sitting in a drawer. Yeah, that's wild. I, you know, what's it's like because that's the thing is you you know now that 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 would have happened for every era, right? Like there there's so much music that they must be sitting on that right. they've just kind of shelved for whatever reason. Like I was talking to Danny Perez about Odd Sack, and he said that you know like it was this whole back and forth of like making visuals, sending it to the band, they make music, they send the music back, but then they get rid of all the music. And then he would make new visuals to the music. It would just be like this back and forth. So I'm like, so basically what you're saying is like, there's like five or six different versions of Odd Sack with totally different music. It's like, where is all that music? Like, <laughs> I want to hear every single version of that. And anytime someone brings up like a white whale like that, I'm like, you know what? Just be patient. I'm sure Geologist will play it on his radio show <laughs> soon enough. Which I love that he still does that month to month. Yeah, it's great, but he's like I feel like he's slowed down on the on the like, you know, the deep animal collective cuts. Like I feel like they're 
as a lot of like tribute to bands he likes or right. certain certain like mood playlists and stuff like that. But I, I like you know, for a while it was almost like every month it was like holy shit this is like this weird you know like we got that like bleak midwinter or whatever like uh, from campfire songs era the original like, campfire songs recording yeah exactly. which was apparently done the year that panda bear the album came out which i would I like just being able to hear that in its entirety would be incredible it'd be so cool uh, although maybe who knows maybe it's just a rougher version of the album we have with the addendum <laughs> of bleak midwinter i'd so. still be interested in that like yeah <laughs> going back to the album i think it's interesting that you can sort of hear the like roots of what his songwriting uh, specifically the structure of his songwriting would become where something like nod to the folks where where it's like nod to the folks you have like this sort of like you know driving section with like and like all these big (laughs) drums and then it like sort of stops and then his vocal part comes in and then it goes back to the drums and the the bass and all that and it's sort of this like start and stop thing which i feel like av tears song style specifically has that repeating motif but you can also sort of hear it on panda bear uh, specifically in the song ain't got no troubles which is a very (laughs) acoustic guitar driven song it almost it's kind of like it's almost like a skiffle song in a way where it just feels like it's a guy with a guitar stomping on the ground just chugging out this thing and then like he'll go full you know tilt full cocked on the uh the guitar and then sort of just slow it down and say sing what he's got to sing and then back into the dun, 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 dun. you know what let's just play the clip let's play the clip roll the clip Jamie can you pull that clip up real quick of the song there's no trouble in my head I think this is like an interest it's an interesting like little stretch like I feel like this album has these stretches where it's like you got that like instrumental kind of thing going on for a little bit I think like like the second track and then on the farm like you're getting that that like strumming that would become kind of synonymous with early uh animal collective like you know campfire songs uh sung tongs era like the freak folk era of animal collective mm-hmm. and then you get this kind of like weird like ballady like f- almost folksy section with uh oh please bring her back and ain't got no troubles like it ain't like the title ain't got no troubles like that that could be like a johnny cash song or something it's a really interesting way that the album is sequenced and then like right into winter in saint moritz it's like super like fun jam like a like guitar jam yeah it's not like the album is entirely like that that is what's interesting about it is because you feel like oh it's we're gonna go into this mode now where it's all somber and melancholic but then you'll get something like fire or we built a robot or winter in saint Moritz <laughs> that just sort of brings the energy back up and then immediately yeah. plateaus back into you know melancholia <laughs> Thank you. 
those kind of feel like they're like breaking it up a little bit because like fire fire and we build a robot like feel slightly out of place i think in the sequencing like fire i think becomes something like more than what it is when like i feel like fire because of its baseline and stuff like that when it starts it's a little like contradictory to itself like i think that the baseline is fighting the vocals and depending on like you know what kind of music you enjoy as as a person you might find that too conflicting to really like get into but i think as the song builds like you kind of like learn to understand that and and then it becomes like this like video game like soundtrack almost yeah when that that, synth line comes in it really opens it up yeah but like we build a robot is is very similar too. like it's it's very like you know i think i it feels very like european techno and like maybe that's why there's so much like german reference in the song titles on this stuff but it's like hearing that song i, I like it it ends too soon because it's like it's the same thing it's like it takes time to click and i feel like that song it's like right as it's fading out i'm like it, it just clicked and like now you're fading out like I, would, I want that ending part to just keep going right and this is one of his longer releases. It's like 55 minutes or something like that. Yeah, it's like an hour, yeah. Because it is more of a mixtape than a, a traditional album, but I think it also kind of works as both at the same time. It does, yeah, for sure. It's And it's one other point. I, I kind of wrote down some notes while I was listening to this too. I don't know if this might be like the age gap thing as well, but I don't know if you've ever listened to like any like like early Flaming Lips. Oh, maybe. There was a spell when I was trying to get into that kind of music. Yeah, so, like, because I, I think people, like, often forget how long that band's been around for, because, like, they started, like, in the mid-80s, you know, and, like, their stuff, like, all the way up until pretty much the mid-90s, like... And that that was when they started getting, like, commercial success, was, like... Yeah, 10, that was, like, yeah, like, a soft... Exactly, yeah, like, Soft Bulletin and stuff, like, that's, like, mid mid to later 90s. That's the one I've heard, Soft Bulletin. Yeah, that stuff's where it all, like, you know, that their sound was, like, solidified, and it's really like weird when you go back and you listen to those old Flaming Lips albums because like Wayne Coyne's not singing with that like higher voice that he's known for. Like it's not that like do you realize like, you know, high, like almost falsetto thing. It's it's like he's singing with like just, just some 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 dude, you know, like there's times where he's like doing like a fucking Eddie Vedder style like vocal on, on some of these early tracks, and I'm just like, what is this? Like it's just so so almost like like jolting you know like it's it's so weird and i feel like this panda bear album is kind of like that i feel like we built a robot (laughs) is a song that really kind of reminds me of flaming lips because it's sonically like similar uh like palette wise but you know you're just like okay like i get that this is panda bear but like it's it doesn't sound like what he he like that tone of his voice that we would all become like you know, like you could listen to any song and hear. Like, I think somebody posted on the Facebook thing. Like, it was some person was like doing a um, like the the national anthem or something like uh, in the style of Pan Bear. Oh yes, and it was just like <laughs> I love that video. It was just so oh, spot on. Say, oh say, oh say, <laughs> exactly. That's one of those ones like... that got buried uh, in the in the horrible uh, formatting of Facebook's archiving of posts, but. <laughs> But like, you know, it's just something like that. You could so instantly be like, yeah, no, totally. That is what Panda Bear sounds like. And it's just like listening to this, you're like, none of that's really there. It's not there yet. Yeah. Well, it, it it's also like it could be somebody else. Yeah. It's interesting that this album. Yeah. It is sort of like in a vacuum compared to his other albums, which is why there is a bit of a like disconnect between them in terms of a discography. But 
when you listen to them back to back, there's really no cognitive dissonance in terms of like being able to tell that it's the same guy that made all of these works, you know? Yeah. It just, it, it feels very much like what it is, which is, you know, an, an, an early work. So kind of going back to what you were talking about, about like the techno influences, we should bring up Panda Bear did an interview sometime along the, I forgot to get the year or the site. I swear we'll be better prepared next time. <laughs> but he was listening like albums that really influenced him. And there was one prompt that was like the album that made you want to start making music. And he specifically credited the band, the orb and their album UF orb, which I've heard. And it's a really interesting sound to it. It's definitely like an outsider techno kind of feel like if those two genres met in the middle, that's what it, my memory of hearing it reminded me of. And it was one of those things where like within like a minute of putting it on, you're like, yeah, I can definitely see how you got from point A to point B with the music that you were inspired to then make because of it. And in order to show the audience what we mean, here's a quick clip from that album. said it's just interesting to see like how even someone like that you would never expect to influence his music can just have this tiny little nugget that he sort of took and ran with and so we we were talking about the bleak midwinter and i think it's interesting because i'm pretty sure that track has like synth on it which most of like campfire songs is like a notoriously acoustic album so it's interesting that there was more equipment involved in that earlier abandoned recording. But the reason I bring it up is because there's a synth in that that sounds a lot like a synth in the podcast eponymous song titled A Musician and a Filmmaker, where there is sort of this like evolving ringing drone like thing to it. And it is just sort of this little melancholy piece. But then when the harsh noise comes in, it really sort of kind of wakes you up it's like that bird in the third act of citizen kane you're just like whoa (laughs) i didn't know this is where the song was going but it's great and here's a little clip from that we're not going to play too much because you're going to be hearing it quite a bit in the future but (laughs) just to show you what we mean here first is an excerpt from bleak midwinter by animal collective And then, to juxtapose, here's a clip from A Musician and a Filmmaker by Panda Bear. So yeah, some really interesting overlap between the the very earliest animal collective projects and this and it's worth pointing out that this album was the first release and only release on a record label that was started specifically for it called soccer star records founded by none other than joshua dibb aka deacon 
his future bandmate from Animal Collective. So they started this record company, Soccer Star Records, and it was basically just a P.O. box, right? I don't even know if they went through the mm. whole LS, LLC uh, process or anything. Like when it says copyright 1999, I doubt that there's any actual legal <laughs> paperwork that declares that as true. But it is interesting that they went through more effort than just passing tapes around for this. Yeah, I think that that just kind of like, you know, adds some degree of legitimacy to it. I remember when I was like, you know, in my mid teens, I would like just like cut out any old like barcode and slap that on, you know, the back of my self-produced albums. Like it's not going to get scanned anywhere. I just want to make it look a little bit more legit. I also I think I put like copyrights on it. There was no actual processing of any copyrights done. Yeah, I think the furthest I went was just paying the extra 20 bucks on Discogs to come up with a fake record label. So it wasn't like <laughs> 8402396213DK records. You know. <laughs> that's fair. That's that's a good idea though. You don't want the DistroKid uh stamp on there. You, know? you want it to look somewhat legit. So Soccer Star then later evolved into Animal, which, if you can believe it, was not the last time that word would be used by these people <laughs> in a name of a musical project. Uh, that was actually specific directly what led to them being called Animal Collective because Animal was the record label. They were putting out stuff like Dance Manatee and Hollindigan, which I actually think might have been on a different label. But this was around that era when they were just crediting themselves as their musician names. And they didn't have a collective name to go by. So, for example, Hall Lindigan and Dance Manatee are both credited to A.V. Tear, Panda Bear, and Geologist. Which is kind of a mouthful when you need to make a marquee for your, you know, low-budget Brooklyn <laughs> venue. So, Animal was the thing. And then around the time they put out their first album as a four-piece, because Campfire Songs was actually just released as Campfire Songs. Later, retroactively changed to Animal Collective, but for the time it wasn't credited to anyone but that. And even on that, they had different monikers than what they use in Animal Collective. So when they came out with the album Here Comes the Indian, which has been retroactively changed to Ark, they needed a name to just have like a two word name to put on a CD and, you know, put in indie record stores that people that might actually catch on and become somewhat of a household name as opposed to hang on, let me get out my notepad and remember all four individual <laughs> musicians. So it's interesting how this was basically the root of the tree that became the animal collective zeitgeist or word. I can't think of because I'm running out of brain cells. It's it's an interesting like evolution to get to that name because I th I think that that name is like Animal Collective is such a it's such a great band name like I don't know it just it instantly stuck with me and it kind of I feel like it summed up and, and maybe I'm not too sure if it works for like different you know like jumping off points depending on what era of the band you got into but for me like in 2005 hearing Sung Tongs and Feels I was like this makes sense because like there's something animalistic about it and it just felt right. And it, it's kind of weird. Cause like, I guess around the painting with era, they, I don't know if this is like totally true or if it's just like a rumor or not, but th they were saying that they were 
thinking about cha- like rebranding their fucking band and calling it the the painters which then ended up being that ep after painting with and i was like that'd be a terrible idea not a terrible <laughs> not super terrible i can add to the context actually it was an idea that they came up with around or specifically av tear came up with around the time of strawberry jam so around 2007 there and then so it didn't get used as anything until 10 years later when yeah they did the ep yeah it it's an interesting like it animal collective as a name personally i feel like if I hadn't discovered them within the context of like 2009 indie pop would not have stuck with me. Like Mm -hmm. I wouldn't like the name if I wasn't a fan. Does that make sense? Like if I was an outsider that didn't know anything about them and I heard the name (laughs) and I never heard my girls, I'd be like, wow, that sounds gay. Not, (laughs) I mean, you know, this is 2009 we're talking about. Exactly. That had a different meaning back then. (laughs) Right. No, but I, I I should go into my, how I discovered the band since I neglected to yeah. so far. My Girls was the first song I heard. Now, interestingly enough, it wasn't just by itself. My first exposure to Animal Collective was actually through a little-known musician by the name of Childish Gambino. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him. Uh, he was also an actor <laughs> on a TV show and a couple <laughs> movies. No, but he did this mixtape called I Am Just a Rapper in like 2009, I think the same year that Meriwether Post Pavilion came out where he was rapping over several indie hits. Like um, the first track on the mixtape is a Sleigh Bells track, Crown on the Ground, which is a fucking banger. The second one is My Girls. And it is very much just, I have this backing track, and here's my low-budget mic recording of a verse I wrote. And it is very much from the cringe Gambino era where every line is about his dick or getting sex or having sex (laughs) or money, like very infantile stuff. Like as someone who enjoys his music and even still enjoys those releases, I can still be like, yeah, and and the big picture, this is cringe. But that was how I discovered (laughs) Animal Collective was My Girls. And so I think it was like I would just go and find those individual songs and like buy them on iTunes. That thing we used to do. When you liked a song, you'd put ninety nine <laughs> cents down on the table and say, I own this now. I've never I've never heard this childish game. Is, is he is he rapping about his dick over top of my girls? Well it's it's mostly a song about like it starts out like in the fourth grade I had a crush on Tia Smith, sixth grade and this crush has turned to Beatrice. But they don't and so it, it goes from like <laughs> I was a fat, chubby, nerdy kid no one liked to I'm a sexy twenty something that gets plenty of pussy in, you know, New York City, right? That's basically what Okay, it's interesting. About. And it's it's very much a product of its time. That's for certain. <laughs> Just much like the Panda Bear solo album. But that was how I discovered it. And then like 5 years later or 3 years later, I was in my freshman year of college and I was doing all this homework and I just needed music. This is when I was getting into music and I was listening to like Arctic Monkeys, Vampire Weekend, you know, all the white boy college core stuff. And then I was like, oh, let me go back and listen to like the full albums from these songs that Gambino rapped over because he, I like all this, the stuff underneath it. I mean, I like the raps, but I'm intrigued by the stuff underneath it. So I should listen to them in full. The first one I think I did was Neon Indians' debut album, which I'm blank. Psychic Chasms, I think it's called. That was great. And then I put on Meriwether Post Pavilion while I was doing, like, college math homework. And <laughs> within, like, the first few minutes, I was like, okay, damn, they're on to, this is on a completely different level than what I thought it was going to be. 
And then by the time Brother Sport ends, like 50 some odd minutes later, you're just like, holy shit, I think I just found my new favorite band. And then it just be- <laughs> it went on, it snowballed from there, as it were. And I slowly worked my way back through their discography and then branched out to all the solo stuff. And now it's gotten to the point where I think the only thing I haven't heard is Terrestrial Tones. Oh yeah, I have a couple of those uh, on CD, and uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to listen to. I, like, have you ever been able to get into uh, Black Days? Not really. I know there are people that are like super into the album Arc by Animal Collective that are like huge Black Dice people, but I can't say I've ever really sought out his music. It's more like anytime he interacts with the <laughs> the, and the Animal Collective guys, I end up liking what they do together. But it's not like. I'm going to throw on the Black yeah. Dice album, you know, whatever it's called, because <laughs> I know that little about them. Yeah, like, like Terrestrial Tones is very much in that vein. Like, it's, you know, I, I feel like maybe what some people expect Animal Collective to sound like is what Terrestrial Tones ended up sounding like. Um, very disjointed. Like A.V. Terror at his most feral. I mean, it's not, yeah, I mean... In a way, yes. In a way, no. Because like it, it's very light on vocals. Like there's not really any vocals. It's just a lot of like noise and music. But it's like that same sort of energy, right? Yeah, exactly. It's very, very frenetic and like disjointed and and just kind of weird. Like it, you know. Meriwether is such a like huge, you know, huge record. Obviously, for anyone that that knows about Animal Collective, and you know, I feel like a lot of people that kind of got into Animal Collective before Meriwether are this, this snobby, you know, music assholes that are going to be like, oh, yeah, I liked them way before, you know, the big album that got everyone into them and stuff. And I'm definitely guilty of being that person from time to time. But there was this, like, moment where I had kind of, like, listened to Sung Tongs and Feels, and I was like, this is so awesome. And they hadn't become my favorite band yet, but that, those, those albums were on repeat a lot. And then as Strawberry Jam was about to come out, they ended up, I was living in Ottawa, and um, it's the capital of the country. Uh, you may, may, may or may not have heard of it. doesn't feel like the capital, but it is. And Animal Collective came by, and they played a show, I shit you not, in a retirement home. And <laughs> there was, like, chairs, <laughs> and um, everyone was sitting down. And uh, Eric Copeland uh, from Black Dice opened, like, for Animal Collective, and so we hadn't heard like shit from Strawberry Jam yet. Like right. I had, I, in my mind, like Sung Tongs and Feels weren't that like sonically different from each other. Like they, they obviously are, but like there was kind of a bit there more. There's a little of, bit of like a freak folk running thread through it, even though freak folk yeah. purists might not agree. Fuck them. <laughs> exactly. Fuck them. Uh, so like the departure from, you know, that to Strawberry Jam is, is definitely, I think, more uh, intense so like you know i hadn't heard black dice before i hadn't heard eric copeland before sitting in those fucking chairs at the retirement home listening to eric copeland just like mash the sampler and make the most like painful sounds <laughs> and just watching everyone looking like side to side and everybody else sitting down and being like what in the flying fuck is this and this guy is just like, you know, he, he is like so into making these noises that everyone like unanimously agrees is excruciating. Right. And, um, well, that's, you know, that's like when you people, look at him and you go, it's Andy Kaufman. He's not dead. <laughs> that's honestly like it felt like it was some sort of like massive inside joke. And so, um, he, he left, you know, he finished his mm-hmm. set. And everyone's like, holy shit, thank God. And then, um, Animal Collective came out, and they didn't play any fucking songs from Strawberry Jam. They played only songs that would eventually turn out to be Meriwether Post Pavilion. 
And they were all those songs in their most basic forms. And like, it was, you know, I think also because of the contrast of what Eric Copeland sounded like, mm-hmm. it was just like this, they opened with like in the flowers and back then it was called dancer. And it was like, just so beautiful and so, you know, just soothing to the ears after what we just heard. And, um, like that, that was the moment where I was like, I love this band. And it's kind of weird because it's like, it's the same sort of story that you have where it's like discovering Meriwether, but like they kind of catfished me because like I was, you know, expecting all these songs I heard to be on this upcoming album, Strawberry Jam. Right. So I like, it comes out, I immediately buy it and put it on. I'm like, this is cool. But like none of like daily routine was like, you know, it was like immediately ingrained in my head. And the closest thing I got to that was like number one. Because I was like, it sort of sounds like mm-hmm. that kind of build up, like, you know, uh, arpeggiated synth thing. But it's not the same as what I remember from that show. And I was getting so frustrated by that. And then it was like, as time went on, then I, then I became like a member of like, you know, Collected Animals and stuff. And I was like listening to the boots. And I was like, oh, this is like from another album. And I started to understand that's what this band does is they workshop stuff before, you know, like they'll release an album and play the, no songs from that album. Right. <laughs> playing songs from the album that's going to come out like three years later. I recall reading an excerpt from an interview they did where they were talking about when Sung Tongs, when they were writing Sung Tongs, they were touring Here Comes the Indian, or Ark, and people were expecting, like, that crazy synth, harsh noise, like, atmospheric <laughs> stuff, and then the first thing they hear is, ah, 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 and then they go right into Leaf House, and everyone's like, what? So I think that's why Sung Tongs starts out with that, like, piercing laser sound because i think it's supposed to be a catfish like a misdirect like here's what you're used to hearing and then bam hard cut (laughs) into a completely different genre but it works it's amazing it's amazing it's it's their genius at work that's their that's their thing so we should probably wrap up this album talk yeah we should we still have a whole three hour movie to talk about (laughs) uh we could talk about animal collective all day as is evident here and we probably will in future episodes but for now Let's end our album discussion by talking about the last highlight of the album, which is sometimes when it hurts bad enough, it feels like this, which for fans of Morse code and uh, Dapper Dan (laughs) infomercials, Dapper Dan, you will be a big fan of this track. Uh, If you're not a fan of either of those things and you're, this is like, if you show this to your grandma, she'd be like, what is this? You know, it's a, it is not your average song. No. And here's a clip. Dapper Dan's my main man. What about you, Jordan? I love Dapper Dan. Is he your main man? I uh, I don't know, I don't know who he is to be honest with you, but I do like his name. So, uh... well, Dapper Dan's my main man. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Isn't Dapper Dan the brand of hair grease that George Clooney's character uses in Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Is it? Because that would make sense from a guy called Dapper Dan. But that movie was 2000, and this album's 1999. So interesting 
I'm, I'm sure Dapper Dan was probably its own thing, like, founded in 1873, still going to this day, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dapper Dan was like a medieval, like, uh, snake oil salesman using the grease from his own hair to put on other people's heads and have them look as dapper as he is. Right. It's Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan. Or it was just some greasy guy that he got the likeness from, but then, you know, <laughs> uh, swindled him out of his... Uh, royalties or whatever but it's interesting that this this song this last song has the lyric what's happened to my voice because any uninformed animal collective fan listening to this for the first time might wonder the same thing but it's okay because (laughs) this is not a very long-lived era of panda vocals if anything it seemed like he stepped back a lot from vocals until he recorded young prayer in 2002 and even then sung tongs Mm -hmm. was really where he started regularly appearing on tracks whether it's like a lead or a backup vocalist yeah and it's also a nice nice tie-in to uh of course uh my singing voice is gone from spirit of course yes and the samples used from no doubt vhs recordings of i think that one was like some rankin bass movie or like one of those 60s era animated things here's future greg to tell you exactly what the (laughs) reference was That would be Sparky's Magic Echo. Thanks, future Greg. Thanks for Googling that. (laughs) But yeah, I am curious as to where this Dapper Dan commercial is from. Because it has this sort of shitpost quality to it. To where it's like the piano playing underneath it is so like sad and, and depressing. And then you've got these like hyper energetic TV hosts doing this weird chant thing for Dapper Dan. It's... It's bizarre, but there something about all these odd, you know, ingredients put together in this soup, it just works so well. And I guess that's fitting because that's, I remember reading a different interview about the band at some point in time and either A.B. Terror or Panda Bear, one of them said that was like their shorthand is when they know something sounds like Animal Collective when it has a soupy quality to it. <laughs> so I've always found that I've never forgotten that because it's such a very specific and I feel appropriate way to describe their sort of wall of sound production or the soundscapes rather that they are able to conjure up from all these different inspirations and acid influenced psychedelic <laughs> jam sessions. So, yeah, I think it's like also like a, you know, kind of reoccurring juxtaposition where they have like uh, something that maybe is like either like an upbeat musical aspect with some pretty like, downer lyrics or or like i think with you know some sometimes when it hurts bad enough feels like this the song title itself sounds like it's gonna be a bummer and then you got these like super peppy like you know voice samples from fucking dapper dan commercial right it's like mm-hmm. it's, it kind of flips flips the um it subverts expectations but yeah that is panda bear by panda bear i would recommend the album if you've never heard of Animal Collective in any capacity before, uh, A, how did you find this podcast? And B, probably don't start here. If you want to learn anything about Panda Bear, go to Person Pitch or Meriwether Post Pavilion or just anything that has like a million plays on Spotify or is on Spotify. That'll probably be more accessible. And then when you start branching your way out, you'll find this. But if this, if the way we've described it sounds interesting to you, go check it out. It's on YouTube, just, just on YouTube. It's not panda bear topic youtube it's just some guy uploaded it and you know what 
We appreciate you, some guy, and we appreciate Frepno and anyone else who has contributed to keeping this album alive because, like we said, it's a time capsule. And if it were lost to time, that would be a shame because there's like a weird little interesting thing going on there and you can see where it all led. So, yeah, I I recommend it. Jordan, I assume you recommend it as well. I hate this album. No, I, I love it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, a perfect blueprint of what is to come and it's as its own it's a very interesting collection of songs and there's some very beautiful songs there's some some challenging songs but you know as you go along with the animal collective journey that's that's kind of what they are so yeah i like it all right well speaking of long journeys and things evolving and discovering (laughs) things you didn't know about yourself through uh we watched a movie through art called bo is afraid (laughs) Now, of course, this movie came out like a month ago or something like that. Yeah. But when we were thinking of a movie to talk about, I think this was the last, the most recent movie I saw in theaters that I was really impressed and really in, impressed by and really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I would say uh, the same. I, what did I, I have seen some other movies in theaters, but yeah, I have not been impressed or even really enjoyed them. So this yeah, is my joke. Right. Let me just say that, um, in that it stars Joaquin Phoenix. In a way, it's very similar. And he has a, you know, very specific character that he plays. I honestly think The Joker is a very dumb movie, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Bo is Afraid, <laughs> and it would be better to frame it in the context of Ari, Oster, Ari Aster's filmography, which isn't very large, obviously, at this point, because he only really hit the scene about five years ago with Hereditary, and then midsummer the year after but this movie has been in development i think for the longest out of all of them because there's a short film called bow from 2011 which is virtually like the opening of the full movie bow is afraid is almost beat for beat for that short film it's like very clearly it was like the sort of acorn that planted the tree that the rest of the movie came from because it's like he leaves the key in the door and it gets stolen and then like just all these things the the you know the guilt trip from the mom on the phone so that sort of anxious you know what's happening vibe was established many years before and it's interesting that it it sort of just grew into this much larger story i think it all really works pretty well but it is just uh not what people expected i don't think when they hear from the director of Midsummer and Hereditary comes a movie that's nothing like those two. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, I can see why people would probably hate this movie as much as I love it. It's like it's it's very ripe for, you know, hatred. I think that, yeah, it's it's super different. Obviously, like it's not really a horror, a horror movie at all. Like it's it's like an absurdist comedy, I think, more than anything. Now, of course, <laughs> there are some horrifying elements to it, but very in small yeah. doses compared to the straight horror that he's done before. Are we, uh, are we able to talk about spoilers? Is I feel like, like we have to listening and I like, Hey, yeah, I feel like we have to. And, so and we should probably, you know like, what? It's, it's been out long enough. Out just go see the damn movie. Yeah. If you haven't seen it yet, then you deserve to have it spoiled, right? It's like your own, you're an fault. adult or you're not, whatever. Just live with it. No, but honestly do yourself a favor and watch the movie if you haven't, because it is really good. I just want to say up front that I really enjoyed this movie, and I think maybe part of the reason why I liked it, maybe more than I would have a few years ago, is because within the last few years, I've really been getting into 
David Lynch. Wow, a film guy is getting into David Lynch. What a surprise. No, but it's true. I, I, a friend of mine recommended Twin Peaks, and then I got super into that, and then I went back through his filmography, and I just really, like, even the movies I don't consider as good. There is just something about it that keeps you watching, wanting to know what happens next. And I think Bo is Afraid has that quality to it. I think Bo is Afraid feels very Lynchian to me, and I don't want to say that in, like, a hack capacity, you know, where I don't have <laughs> anything to describe things with. But it's true. There is a very Lynchian sort of feel to this movie where there is that sort of ambiguity between, like, is this a dream? Like, the pills he took in the beginning, is everything we're seeing, like, a hallucination based off of a, you know, bad reaction to the medication he was supposed to drink water with? Did his journey to the store across the street take too long? And Or is this all happening for real? The fact, the fact that it's that ambiguous, I really like. Because it constantly keeps you wondering what's going to happen next in a good way, not in a like, when is this going to be over with kind of way. For sure. Yeah, I think like definitely saying it's Lynchian is 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 fair. I think depending on who you tell that to, they might have like a different sort of perception of what that means. Like, I think if you've watched David Lynch films and you have like a fondness for the way that a story unfolds in a very unconventional storytelling way you might appreciate something being Lynch Lynchian, but I definitely know that there's a lot of people out there that would hear that, that sort of terminology and be like, Oh, that's not for me then because that's gonna It just means it's going to be fucking weird. So even then it's worth pointing out that David Lynch movies aren't that unconventional in terms of story structure. Well, yeah, I mean, that's occasionally true. they'll do something weird, but it's only like inland empire and Eraserhead that are like straight up abstract <laughs> and then stuff like Mulholland drive sort of skirts the line, but yeah. You know, I think I should also mention the Coen brothers. This is like if Coen brothers met David Lynch. Yeah. In a three hour odyssey. That's kind of what this movie is. That's a good point. Yeah. It's, I feel like this one, yeah. And this one, it, it is like kind of in a way like conventional storytelling, but I think that there's just so many layers to it. And I think that's also like a, a an aspect that makes David Lynch's movies fascinating to, to watch and especially rewatch. I have only seen Bo is Afraid one time in the theater so it is like a three-hour movie so there are aspects of it where like I I could definitely use a refresh on some of the scenes but the overall impression that I got is is like it's it it is weird and it is this thing where you're constantly wondering what is real versus what is like conjured by Bo's imagination but I think you know obviously it's done by design because I think the whole thing boils down to what it's like to be a very fearful individual or someone who like experiences a lot of anxiety from, uh, you know, any, any given task. So it's like a hundred percent. Yeah. That was mainly what kept me interested in watching this. Exactly. So it's like seeing that it's all very hyperbolic because it's like, you know, you like that, that opening scene, like, you know, past him talking to the, the shrink and all that stuff, but just him getting back to his place you know, you're getting that whole chaotic sequence of him just like running back to his apartment building and like, then there's that dude with like the tattooed face and everything. And like every, like he's like what he's like, they're getting like soup handouts or something. He like smashes the bowl on the ground. He just starts chasing like Bo immediately. Everyone's doing something awful on the street. It was just like, you know, I think the best way I can describe it is that it's like a, it's like, okay, the thing about having anxiety is that you always have that worst case scenario lingering in the back of your head about any situation you get Mm -hmm. into. And so like the first 30 minutes of this movie is like the most hyperbolic, like Murphy's Law kind of thing where it's like 
everything yeah. like what is the worst case scenario for every situation that he gets himself into we're going to show you here and that's, that's sort totally of what kickstarts his journey yeah. across the country because the story is about the fact that he's supposed to go visit his mom and then a bunch of a series of unfortunate events as it were occur uh, at his apartment and he doesn't feel like he can safely leave and travel cross country and he has a very his mother is very overbearing and has a uncanny ability to guilt trip him beyond recourse to the point where he gets a call at a certain point and he finds out that she has her head was crushed by a chandelier and she's now dead and he has to come home as soon as possible to get to her funeral and then i think like five minutes later he is running out on the street completely naked and gets hit by a van so <laughs> it's, it's a little all over the place but that is his journey for the film is trying to get home to you know yeah take care attend of the that. funeral yeah he like it, it's it's definitely like it, it gave me that vibe like i don't know if where you live if there's any like rough neighborhoods or anything like that but you know there's there's like pockets in toronto where it's just like you're kind of like oh yeah i'd be careful if i was like walking down that area or whatever and it's like kind of what I imagine some people and sometimes it's, it's not as bad as it it's made out to be you know and it's like the, I I kind of got the idea that like the way Bo is looking at like that street immediately outside of his apartment building is like what somebody who lives in like kind of like the the upper echelons of you know like the city would think about the slums they're like oh god like everyone's just there like killing each other and like gouging out each other's eyes all the time you know it's just like yeah and there's like people having sex on the on the pavement yeah yeah exactly when it's just like okay like you know it, it, it is a little rougher than what you're used to but it's not quite like that like it's not that extreme and then that that idea of it is is what kind of like almost you know yeah well, it, it very it. much sets the tone for how heightened everything in the movie is and i think it really works to the movie's benefit that you know, it's like I really when a movie is able to harness a specific type of anxiety the entire time, I really get into that. Like Uncut Gems was my favorite movie of 2019. And that was one of the main reasons was just that they kept this like manic anxiety driven like energy the entire time with only a few moments of like, oh, OK, now back to the crazy hypermanic energy. And it's yeah. crazy that a, a movie like this. Now, Bo is Afraid doesn't necessarily do that the entire time because there are definitely bits where it slows down and, and takes its time and lets the avenues that it finds itself in really flesh themselves out. But there is always a sort of running undercurrent of that feeling of like, oh, God, what's going to happen next? How is he going to get out of this? And that's why you go to the movies, right? You put a character mm -hmm. in a scenario and then yeah. they either get completely trapped or they find a way out through circumstance or their own creativity just it just so happens to be that in this movie it's mostly luck that gets him out of all these situations but um maybe not depending <laughs> on how you in interpret the ending but we'll get to that yes there's uh, a lot that's up for interpretation in this and i think like you know there is this kind of like th these connecting fibers to Ari Aster's other movies that have something to do with you know uh genetics and like um family and and in particular mothers so it's it's really interesting in, in this movie because i think that there's some degree of like uh i don't know how, how i would put it but like the 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 mom you know as as we find out you know she's like not dead and stuff but she, she's very yeah i know she's very like you know um 
in her own world herself, you know? And I think that like, there's this similarity with Bo's character, but it's just, an, it's a different version. It's like, she's in a world of maybe like overconfidence or something where he's like the complete opposite, but it's like, you're, you're so self-involved on either ends of the spectrum. And I thought like, that's maybe an interesting way because I don't know if you if you if you've picked up on this or not, or even if this is maybe a thing in that movie, but I felt like you know, like uh, the flashback where um, they're on that like boat cruise yeah. or whatever, and Bo meets um, what's her what was the character's name? The girl. I don't remember. I just remember Parker Posey plays her when she's an adult. Yeah. Okay. Let's just call her Parker Posey. Yeah. So, uh, ch- child Parker Posey. She's there's like a dead guy in the pool, and uh, she was like she's she's like kind of having having a laugh about it or whatever and the guy's name i don't know who said it but someone says like that's gene and i was like is that a coincidence that there's a guy called gene in the pool you know when the movie might have something to do (laughs) about genetics and gene pools knowing ari aster probably not (laughs) that's what i thought i was like that doesn't seem like it'd be a coincidence so i was like it would be really fun to rewatch this and kind of like see what other little you know hidden tidbits are in there that might make sense of another layer of the film yeah i would be interested to read a book kind of like i got this one for get out that was like annotated by jordan peele where it's the screenplay and then he'll put like little numbers and you flip to the back and you read like a little diatribe he had about it sort of explaining like a, a detail or like i mean it is sort of in a way explaining the movie but like it also appealed to a lot of really low iq people so you know you kind of have to <laughs> after a certain point but i, I do i feel like that would be an interesting thing to do with this movie is have a book where Ari Aster is really able to extrapolate but again it's up to whether the artist wants to share that or if they want to leave it up to the audience's interpretation which this movie definitely has a lot of areas where it just leaves you to your own devices on whether or Mm -hmm. not on on how you want to interpret something or if you think it really happened or didn't and the fact that it doesn't linger on any of those things is I think a big strength to the movie like I don't think even when it seems to start sniffing its own farts a little bit, it's still ambiguous enough to where you're not like, they're not beating you over the head with what they're trying to say. Like it's still being able to yeah. take whatever it's trying to say and do it in a creative way. And I do think the biggest theme of this movie is we were sort of talking about it with Ari Aster's other movies, but it's generational trauma, 100%. Mm-hmm. Because there's the backstory that Bo's mom tells him, which is that when his dad uh ejaculated inside of her during <laughs> Bo's conception. He had a heart attack and died instantly. As did his father, as did his father's father, as did the man before and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, we later find out that the reason she tells this to Bo is to try to ke- keep control over him, right? And then mm-hmm. the first time he first time we see Joaquin Phoenix naked in this movie, you're like, wow, he has giant balls. Is that a Joaquin Phoenix <laughs> thing or is that a character thing? You later find out it's a character thing because apparently he's never jizzed in his life. Um, and so he does, <laughs> and he does it into Parker Posey, and then she immediately goes into rigor mortis somehow, which, you know what? Not the weirdest thing to come from that part of the movie, so I'm not going to question it. But the point I'm trying to make is that his mother has her own generational trauma like i think she at one point mentions how her mother abandoned her or like really abused her and raised her poorly so she she always wanted to treat Bo and like cater to him and make sure that her baby boy never had to grow up that same you know and have that same trauma 
ironically, because she ends up making him worse off than she probably was in the first place. I don't think he has that sort of, like, vitriol or hatred inside of him. It is 100% anxiety just caused by the fact that his mother is so overbearing. And we can probably chalk all of this up to the elephant in the room, which is Judaism. As it turns out, Ari Aster (laughs) is Jewish. And I read in an article that apparently he has a great (laughs) relationship with his real parents. But... I'm sure he's experienced, you know, little versions of all the, what would you say, like exaggerated stuff you see in this movie. I feel like microcosms of that are probably stemmed from real life, but are blown up to such a degree to where it is just so like crazy and all over the place. Like the fact that he goes in the attic and he finds out that his dad is still alive and he's a giant penis. Like who's actually thinking that that's literal, right? Like if at some point is that got it has to be Bo. That's all Bo's dad is in his life was just a penis. That it's a giant giant dick. That you know, sperm in the egg met and made him. That's all that his dad ever was in context. Now, whether or not that old decrepit Bo we saw in the attic was his dad or his twin, again, who the fuck knows? But the fact that the movie doesn't <laughs> linger on it is fine because if they did, it would be yeah. worse off. Like. There's nothing I hate more in a movie than introducing something so over the top and out of reach and then having the character sit there and explain it like a Christopher Nolan movie, for example. <laughs> you know, like it can help, you know, explain the plot and get the audience on board. But after a certain point, you just get bogged down in it. And it's like, do the thing. Don't just talk about the thing, you know? So, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to sit here and mansplain the whole movie, and I feel like I cut you off at some point, but. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, that's all. Like, I, I mean, like, in terms of Judaism, I think, like, I've, I've not personally, like, kind of analyzed the fil- film from that perspective, but I do think that, like, the generational trauma and all that stuff, it's definitely there, and it's, like, the same stuff that was in, like, Hereditary and Midsommar, and I think that the way that that is shown and depicted in his films is what makes his films so awesome it's you know there's a, there's a very like there's connecting tissue here to like animal collective you know it's like the 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 challenge of kind of unpackaging this stuff is what makes the the kind of reward so much greater at the end and i think that a lot of people walk into you know an ari aster movie with the same sort of like pretenses like listening to an animal collective album like they've kind of already made up their minds that like it's going to be fucking weird and it's going to make no fucking sense or, or something. Or like if you're walking into an M. Night Shyamalan movie and you're expecting a big twist at the end, even though in the last decade yeah, it's like yeah. the anti-twist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like this this movie, it has all that stuff in there, but it's like it, it is very wrapped up in other things that are, are visually stimulating and might that might take precedent over like what maybe the, the message is behind it. I think like this movie, you know, to, to think that this movie after three hours of watching a guy who's trying to get to his mother's funeral ends up in a giant like indoor like aquatic like an arena like, with like, like a, a sea world big giant pool yeah. in the middle which I'm sure his mom funded since she's like the CEO of some giant corporation yeah exactly and, and he's be, being on like trial you know with a, a like it's you know who the hell would expect that it's gonna go there so you know I I, I Again, I think it's like it's one of those movies where if if you're if you're open to it, if you're open to the idea of trying to kind of look a little deeper into it and see what what things kind of represent, 
rather than what they just appear to be. I think you're really going to like this movie, but I, I can see, especially because it's three hours long, like I can see some people who are just like, who are rolling their eyes at Midsommar being like, oh, fuck, really this now? Like, th- this is just, this is, you know, it like, um, it's like Wes Anderson's, you know, like becoming like the caricature of himself. It's like, I, I could see people looking at this movie that way. Right. But I also appreciate that, you know, he's trying something different and he's not just going to keep making the same type of movie over and over again. Cause he very could have easily done that. Or he could have said, okay, Marvel, I'll take $20 million to make, you know, Thor five. <laughs> right. Yeah. But he's, he's sticking to his guns and it, it this very, I think this is one of those, I've been working on this script for a decade movies. And you can really tell mm-hmm. how fleshed out it is and how many little, like, yeah. very specific scenarios are in it. Like, the teen daughter of Nathan Lane. Like the Okay, so he gets hit by a van, mm-hmm. and then the, allegedly the people that hit him take him back to their home and, you know, like, pamper him. And you, you find out that their son died in combat in a war, and so they're sort of using him as, like, a surrogate. But then they're also taking care of another veteran who has PTSD who is, like, you know... <laughs> Uh, prone to violent outbursts and then it, their daughter feels like she her their actual daughter feels like she's being neglected and her brother's being replaced so she's constantly taking all these substances to deal with that and then at some point she literally kills herself by drinking paint and it's one of the most yeah the blackest comedy <laughs> i've ever seen like darkest comedic <laughs> like it is so disturbing to watch but she also yeah. calls him and this is her words not mine a pussy f- it before drowning herself with paint. So there's the absurdity of all of it. It's like you're constantly teetering on the edge of like, this is fucked up and this is hilarious. And the movie, it works so well yeah. with that divide that when you get to the end, you're just like, you, you still don't, even when you think you know where it's going, you still don't know. And it, like you said, it would be interesting on a rewatch just to be like, I know where this is going. Now let me sort of soak it in <laughs> while we're getting there. Yeah, I think like you, you've, you're totally right about like that dark comedy, like that moment when um, they open the door and see Bo with the daughter and she's just like rigor mortis as well, like just this creepy fucking like, and you know, if you blink, you'll miss it. Like if you're looking at Bo's face, you'll miss it. You just look down for one second, see her face. Like, Holy shit, that's terrifying. She's totally dead. Um, but it's like the same, it's like the same sort of comedic beat as like, you know, watching American Pie and see like the dad walking another guy fucking the pie, right? It's like, it's that same comedic setup. It's like, whoa, this is an awkward scenario to be. But it's like, fuck, this girl just committed suicide, yeah. and like, she's dead. Like, it, it's it, it's it's hard to like, it's hard to know how to re- react to to a scene like that. And that's what's I think so genius about about this movie. But also Ari Aster in general. I, you know, I think these kind of like you know the modern horror auteurs that people tend to really uh, hate if they're about like jump scares and shit like Ari Aster and um, like uh, Robert Eggers and stuff. It's like, I, I, to me, I think what's so awesome about these filmmakers is that they're not really horror filmmakers. I think that's like some of their films happen to strike people as horror films, like hereditary, probably more so than any of them, but it's just, it's like the same with like, you know, Robert Eggers kind of little trilogy where it's like, you got the witch, which is like, okay, like, yeah, you could call it a horror film, but really it's like a period piece drama. And then like, then you got like the lighthouse, which some people say is horror, but I well, don't both. think it it's is. It's like and a then... dark comedy. And then it, it, even when it gets yeah. into the horror territory, the humor, the sense of humor is never completely gone. It's still there. Yeah, exactly. So I think like, you know, that 
that could be another thing that people m might like benefit from kind of having that perception where it's like this isn't a horror movie it's it's another movie by this guy that sometimes will show you stuff that will instill fear in you right like i don't, um, I don't expect you'll see i don't expect to go stuff. into this getting like terrifier right no yeah exactly but i and you know what i i appreciate that ari aster is with this it seems like he's not just a horror filmmaker he's just a filmmaker and and exactly the fact that it is with a company like A24, and this is their most expensive movie to date. I mean, the production scale of this movie <laughs> is fantastic. Like, just the in the scope of it, yeah. like, the locations that they have access to, and just, like, the homes that it partially takes place in. It's, like, it, every... The world feels so big, but the, the stuff that you're focused on is always so, like, contained and, and small and personal. Mm -hmm. Like, especially when you get to that play uh, sequence in the middle, which is beautiful it's gorgeous the art direction just the execution yeah. of it like you can tell that they had like some crazy practical like uh revolving sets that he was standing on or like who knows how they pulled it off but it, it goes through this whole odyssey of him like you know meeting a woman falling in love having kids and then having all of them swept away in a flood and going through this whole journey and turning into an old man like just all of this like it, it, the fact that this is in the same movie as that paint drinking scene, it 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 does it means that this it, movie it feels like it has something to say, and it's not just shock humor for the sake of it. Like the shocking moments come as a byproduct of the heightened anxiety and uh, you know scenarios that he finds himself in. But it's not like the point of the movie. The point of the movie is you know this guy's been raised incorrectly from my personal opinion i don't think his mom would agree but um and he sees the world in a much different way so when it comes to like i want to loop in the fact that i got midsummer vibes the second he stepped into that commune in the woods mm -hmm. i was like oh we're doing a little mm -hmm. bit of a midsummer yeah. thing here and it's it's interesting how that's like it's like a little micro version of that movie where the main character is so easily sort of swayed and motivated by the manipulation of this cult, which may or may not be all set up by his mom. Like, we don't even know how deep her pockets run in this conspiracy to, to <laughs> prove that he's a bad son, even though he's really not. He's got a shitty mom and he's doing the best he can. There's there's some interesting stuff with that, uh, that whole forest play thing, too, because like and, and I got I should look into this because. I, it's been a long time since I've, um, you know, seen any renditions of Hamlet or like read Hamlet, but there is a line in the play where some dude says to Bo, he says, uh, what is it? It's um, sorrow sends not single spies. It sends battalions, which is uh, a line from Hamlet, which is, you know, famously about, um, you know, a guy avenging like the murder, murder of his, his father, so I think there's got to be something about that in there too. I just don't know right. what. And and then there's like that whole thing with his fake dad in the crowd and his fake sons, one of whom is Michael Gandolfini, yeah. which I was like in the theater. I'm like, how do I know that guy? <laughs> it's James Gandolfini's son, the guy from the the Many Saints of Newark. A, a guy whose father died right. in real life. So maybe that's uh, intentional too. I, wow, so. I didn't even think about that until you pointed it out. <laughs> Which, I, again, who knows if that was intentional. Yes, that whole scene is so good, so bizarre. It's so visually stimulating. Like, in, in terms of dark humor, like, 
that like Jeeves or whatever the uh, the war vet who's like just in, oh yeah like, he's just programmed to like chase down Bo. It's so fucking funny. I was laughing so hard, and I, I kind of had this like feeling right like when that every you know it was just it, you knew something was building to this crescendo that was going to be like this horrible thing. And uh, I was like, that fucking guy is still tracking Bo down. Like, he is going to show up. I didn't think by any means it was going to be as, like, fucking balls to the wall crazy as it was. Like, just, like, massacre. But, my God, like, that's one of those things where it's just, like, it's just so over the top that I, like, I was, like, laughing in the movie theater watching that. I'm, like, I'm, like, laughing at people getting, like, literally mowed down. But this is so funny. Right. And then he shows up later in the movie, so you're, like... What, did that even happen? I mean, who knows? I think, I think yeah. Is he really stabbing this penis monster to <laughs> yeah. death? Well, I think he was, he he did still have the wound, right? Like in his shoulder, I think, when he showed up with the penis monster. Oh, I, I that happened so fast I didn't even notice, but you're probably right. I think so, because like I was looking for that, because I was like, oh, I thought he like died, you know, by shooting himself when he fell over, which was hilarious But yeah, that well. climax in the woods is really one of those moments where like <laughs> leading up to it, you're like... Okay, I can kind of see why this movie was expensive, but it hasn't really like fully shown how much budget. And then that there's all the explosions and the gunfire. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, that's where they put the money in. And then of course the the giant arena at the end. Like, who knows how much of that was CG or mm-hmm. practical? Yeah, I'm sure it was probably a bit of both. It's it just it's a testament to how far A24 has come, and just well, Ari know, Ari Aster is. Ari Aster is like their 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 bread and butter. True. Like he's like the he is a twenty four. You know, like they can't go they can't go go cheap on 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 this. I guess movie. you could also like, say Alex Garland, but after Men, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I guess we'll see. <laughs> Did you not like Men? You know, while we're on the topic of Bo is Afraid, I think there's movie <laughs> things that Bo is Afraid did right that Men didn't, and that. <laughs> like you know you're watching something allegorical or metaphorical but it's just so blatant mm. and like paper thin that you're just like is this mm. uh huh so i it just i normally love alex garland movies but i think that one needed a second draft i've, I've famously <laughs> said that ryan johnson needs a co-writer for all of his screenplays because then they could be truly great and maybe alex garland needs a second opinion or two every now and again I don't know. I'll still, anytime it's, it's quite like, possible. you know, something like Bo is Afraid or if it is a filmmaker like that, it's like no matter what the project is, I'm always interested to check it out. Like even if it doesn't end up resonating with me, like Licorice Pizza and Paul Thomas Anderson, you bet your ass whatever the next <laughs> yeah. movie he makes is, I'm going to go see it because it's Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> so I am totally, totally. encouraging yeah. A24 and Ari Eister to keep going this direction with their balls to the wall, you know, whatever we want to do kind of cinema because it's it's the more interesting the better yeah they've been really like nailing it too for the most part like i i definitely say that like 90 percent, if not a little bit more than that of a24 films that i've seen i've thoroughly enjoyed like there's a few like i bodies 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 was like one of the worst films i think i've maybe ever seen in my life well it's one of the worst titles i've ever heard so that's why i didn't watch it <laughs> Yeah, I mean, P- Pete Davidson is like I just can't and stand I that guy. And I fully agree with like that. Everything, I can't, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
uh, Pete Davidson, if you're listening, you know, um, appreciate the the listen, but please stop listening to us. I don't want anything. Or to if do you're going to you. keep being in movies, um, make sure every single one of them has a scene of you getting your ass beat, like Fast X. That was that was <laughs> worth you showing up in the movie was seeing you get your ass beat. He does die in Bodies, 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 which offered a little bit of you Same know with the Suicide Squad. Even though that movie was already fantastic, the fact that that happens in like the first ten minutes, you're like, this is gonna be. Great. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a really good movie. I, I like that one a lot. Uh, but Bodies, yeah, that was the that was the only A twenty four movie where I was like, okay, like this sucks, and this could have been released by Blumhouse, and I would have believed that. That's how I felt about the menu. I think we agree on the menu. Oh, yeah. Was that A24? No, it was some other studio, no. but it, it had, right. they were trying to go for that same sort of like oh, aesthetic. Yeah. And it was like, this sucks. Like, yeah. I can tell you put all your effort into those like <laughs> few beautifully framed like dish shots. But a lot of the, there are some shots in the movie where it cuts to it and it's like, that looks like a blooper or like footage you would have <laughs> trimmed out of the movie, but you left it in because yeah. I guess coverage is hard to get. Also, when you need a, when you set a movie in one room, it needs to have a really good script. Otherwise, it's going to be painful to watch. Yeah, it, and you can do it. it. There's been many movies that have uh, achieved the one room thing or just minimal set locations. And if the if the script is engaging enough, you will look completely past that. But plays do it all the fucking time. Reservoir Dogs, I think, is the shining example where, like, even though there are some flashbacks that don't take take place in the warehouse. It mostly takes place in the warehouse, and it yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, back to Bo is afraid. Yeah, back we to Bo, don't really have much else to say. I I really enjoyed it. I'm really based on this. Like after Midsummer, I was like, eh, maybe Ari Aster isn't you know the to watch guy. But after this, I'm like, now fuck that. I think I don't know what happened with Midsummer. I I know a lot of people <laughs> love it. I, there are things I appreciate about it, but overall, I think it's kind of weak. I think the strongest part of the movie is the portrayal of a psychedelic trip, which I don't think has ever been more accurately portrayed in a movie before. <laughs> it, it is it is extremely accurate, yeah. They, they nailed that. But I'm, I'm excited to see what he does next, and I think this was – I think this is his best movie. I'll say it. Have you, uh, have you tried watching The Midsommar – uh, three-hour director's cut version. You know, that was the one I wanted to watch as my first viewing, but the copy I torrented was so, like, compressed that when hit the boyfriend is walking <laughs> home in the snow in the first few minutes, it was so, yeah. like, digitally noisy. I was like, fuck this. And so I went on Amazon <laughs> and watched the theatrical version. So I've heard people say that the di- director's cut is better, but I don't. I didn't really care enough about the movie to sit through it again and then some, you know? Yeah, I, I think I think if you didn't like it the first time around, that might not change. It's you know, I, slight detour here. People told me the same thing when Batman vs Superman came out because oh, I saw it in theaters and I was like, this movie sucks. I was like, this is like so fucking bad. And then it came out on like you know the ultimate Blu-ray director's edition. Exactly. Yeah. Like everyone's like, no, 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 you got to watch like the fucking Snyder cut or whatever of this. It's like so much better. They add another 45 minutes. I was like, that was a fucking long movie that <laughs> with, was with a plot so that tedious. barely makes any sense. So how is it, having more? I was like, how, how exactly? I was like, I don't want to see more of it. I want to see less of it. And I literally see all it again. that is in there is that like that uh, black lady who I think was like the district attorney or something. Some she has something oh, yeah. to do with the congressional hearing that Superman is framed for blowing up. Uh, but she gets like a subplot and then she gets shoved in front of a subway and then it ends and you're like, 
Okay, yeah, that's why you cut it out of the movie, because there's nothing to it. <laughs> why? Uh, and what difference would that make about any of the other yeah. failings of the film? <laughs> Which, I guess we should mention, this movie, Bo is Afraid, at one point was called Disappointment Boulevard, although I don't know. <laughs> yeah. if, I think Ari Aster said from the beginning it, he wanted it to be called Bo is Afraid, but Disappointment Boulevard was floated around like the studio for marketing purposes. I like that title. I, I, I like this. I don't dislike it, but I think Bo is afraid is more to the point of what the movie is about. It, 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 it yeah, it encapsulates what the film's about. Especially more, if you're going to sell um, a three hour surrealist comedy, you need the title to be a little broad. <laughs> yes, for sure. No one would have seen it if it was called disappointment Boulevard, but I think that'd be a fucking sick name for a band. Absolutely. And I think he said that himself. Oh, or maybe really? that was you. <laughs> I, maybe I'm remembering when we talked about it, uh, like before we had a podcast. Oh really? I I don't know if it was. I feel like I just came up with that right now, but <laughs> who, knows? who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but the reason I bring it up, this was originally four hours long. Yeah, that would be overkill, I think. So I'm intrigued to see what didn't make the final cut, or if he was just saying that based <laughs> on how long the script was. Like it 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 doesn't overstay its welcome, and I have I would like to think you know a level of patience that maybe is more so than your average average moviegoer, but. I do think if it was four hours long, I, it would overstay its welcome, I think. I, I think it was the perfect amount of time. I think they, they spent enough time on each of the different set pieces that it never felt like it was lingering too long. But I don't know if if even if it was, like, jumping between, like, just, like, new surreal, like, you know, set piece. I don't know if that would keep me going for another hour. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, all the set pieces take their time. And I would say... Like, even if there are some parts where I feel like it lulls, none of it feels purposeless. Mm-hmm. It all feels like it's there for a reason. So you're willing, I'm willing at least to put up with something that might be taking longer than I would do myself as a filmmaker. But like the great David Lynch himself says, who gives a fucking shit how long a scene <laughs> is? Yes. And, uh, you know, for all the people that watched inland empire five hours long <laughs> and still dug it hey maybe a four hour is there a five hour cut of that movie out yeah there? <laughs> I, it's, I think it's damn near close oh it's like God. four and a half hours or something well i know the theatrical version is only three so that's yeah there's uh but that makes sense because that started out as just a bunch of short films that he ended up weaving together into a narrative yeah i think like they just extend a lot of like the like the rabbit sitcom and stuff like that this goes on oh, a lot yeah, longer. yeah, because that full thing is like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I still need to... That's the one Lynch movie I still haven't seen aside from <laughs> Dune, and I need to finish Elephant Man. It was just... I was not in the right mood for Elephant Man. <laughs> but I was in the right mood for Bo is Afraid, and it was a great theatrical experience, even if it was one of those, like, Sunday afternoon, theater has a capacity of 25 mm-hmm. seats kind of screenings. Do you think... Do you think you have to be in a certain mood to enjoy a movie like Bo is Afraid? Like, could, could you be, like, drinking with your buddies on, like, a hot summer day and just, like, go and throw on Bo is Afraid and, and get, like... For the full thing, yes, you do have to be in a mood for it. I think you could probably throw on the first 30, 45 minutes and, with your friends and just laugh. But once it starts getting <laughs> into the rest of the movie, I would I would probably get bored at a party and be like, let's put on something else, like bob ross or pulp fiction you know mm-hmm. just whatever end of the spectrum we need to go to to switch it up totally i was at a party uh like a couple couple months ago and so somebody decided to put on all quiet on the uh the western front <laughs> the new one 
Yeah. I was like, wow, this is like not, this doesn't make any sense. That's <laughs> not the vibe I would not yeah, a, expect. It, 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 in no context, this is making any sense. I still need to watch it. I've heard it's, it's good. really, really it's good. It's good. I, I'm like, I wrote like a review on Facebook for it and it's, you know, I, I'm getting like kind of cynical and jaded when it comes to war movies. They're all kind of becoming the same thing to me. Like, you know, I, I right. watch any war movie. I'm like, oh yeah, it's like the same color tones, like the same same beats. Like it's you know triumphant at times. It's fucking sad at others. In that direction, I've heard that All Quiet on the Western Front was almost a better version of 1917, which is only like four <laughs> years ago, like three years before that. I would I so. would disagree. <laughs> I like 1917 more, but um, I. I mean, I don't dislike it, but I feel like it's one of those movies where you just forget about it almost immediately. Yeah, I think like uh, that's like Roger Deakins, right? It doesn't like linger with you like other one take, yeah, yeah, movies. And I just dropped my AirPods case. That's oh, what I that sounds. That. But yeah, no, I think like I I only saw 1917 the one time, but like the cinematography, like Roger Deakins, always good. Like and again, it wasn't like I wouldn't say like oh 1917, it's like the best like war movie of all time or anything. It was just another it's just one. Another, it's just another war yeah, movie. Another yeah, well-made so, one with every famous... Per- <laughs> it, it's almost like that movie and Dunkirk were trying to compete in how many famous people they could cram into a war Those setting. movies, like, I, I often forget which one is which. Like, I'll picture a scene from it and be like, which one's that from? I, I legitimately have no idea. That's fair. I mean, they are two different wars, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, <laughs> they're wearing helmets, you know. They're running around with rifles. It's the same. It's the same. They're, they're all <laughs> yeah. British. Yeah, I get it. All right, well, I think that about does it. I th- wow, we've ran quite long. Yeah, on you got this, some editing, but... dude, or not? If you want it to be uh, a super no, <laughs> a little, a little bit of editing. I think we should, we should just let's just say that for the future, uh, we won't go as long. But this is just the first episode, so we're feeling it out. We're just trying to figure out how the format works, and then you know, with time, things will tighten up. But if you've made it this far, we want to thank you for listening to random people you've never met. <laughs> talk about niche topics and we'll be back soon uh we're gonna try to do two of these a month now that could mean you know two weeks back to back it could mean the first and the fourth week of the month it just whenever we end up finding a time to do it because jordan's a busy boy and i'm you know busy myself just not as so you know we'll, we'll keep we'll it figure loose it out. yeah so jordan thank you for joining me i look forward to doing the rest of this show with you i feel like i feel like we got a we got a good thing going here. Maybe I don't want to toot our own horn too early, too loudly, but um, I think we're we've on the got right path interesting here. insights into both music and film, and I think that other people might enjoy hearing it too. And I also think that if anybody did get this far into the podcast, that like you know, Bo's afraid is definitely for you because if you have the patience level for this. That you, <laughs> you can get through Bo's Afraid. And especially with all the different non <laughs> Exactly. And you could probably get into Panda Bear's self titled album as well, because that's also there you go. <laughs> very similar. It all ties together. All, we did this by design. Yes. This is this there's just, there's no accidents. There's no happy accidents here. Uh, it's all <laughs> it's all intentional. It's like Bo's mom. It's all orchestrated <laughs> and uh it's there's a system, there's a method to the madness. Always. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Oh, by the way, Bo is afraid. Nine out of ten. I very probably might raise it uh, like to like a nine point five. It's very rare that I give a movie a ten out of ten, but fantastic movie. I'm gonna go with an eight out of ten for Bo is afraid. Upon rewatching, that might go up. The only thing that brings it down for me 
is is it is quite long. I th- yeah. I think it could be two and a half hours. I think I think short movies, man. Bring back the short movie. I'm I'm getting older. <laughs> I don't Pig. have much time. <laughs> we got to talk about Pig. Ninety minutes. Pig. Ninety minutes. There you go. Make your movies ninety Fantastic. minutes. If you can if you can get everything that you need in ninety minutes, then you are a master filmmaker. And if you can make an album in uh, forty two minutes, even better. Even better. Unless you're doing like a Brian Eno sixty minute drone, then you know you do. You. In which case, go on as long as you want. But to that, we will try to keep this within like an hour, hour and a half in the future. <laughs> yes. So anyway, thank you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Panda Bear, play us out.